Let's pray. God, I think if, uh, <clears throat> if we understood that song, if we understood those words, if we understood how much you love us, we would live very differently. We would respond to you differently. We would love you differently. We would love others and treat others differently. So God, thank you that, um, that you put on someone's heart to put those words down to help us get a little bit closer to understanding your great love for us. We're going to talk about it again as we look at Luke 15 and the prodigal son how much you indeed do love us. And so, God, thank you for that. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves in the gift of Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may all be seated. One of the things uh, you hear us talk a lot about here is Recovery Church, and we are all in on Recovery Church. It isn't, it isn't a thing. It's a movement. If you're a part of it, you know that it's a movement. If you're around it, you've no doubt met people, know people, maybe you are a person whose life has been changed because of it. The guy that God, I'm trying to phrase this correctly, that God put on his heart to say yes to what probably felt like an impossible call to launch Recovery Church. I've known for 20 years, his name is Phil Dvorak, and he and his family are with us today. Phil. Yeah. Thank this man. I can only imagine Sarah, his wife, is going, I'm the one that's got to do all the work here because that's kind of how it works. Sarah, I feel for you. Phil, thank you for what you are doing and the way that you are answering God's call because all the way up here in the currently not frozen Minnesota, lives are being changed for Jesus because of what God called you to do and you answered. So thank you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Yeah. So uh, we're talking prodigal son. We're talking about basics of Christianity, how it is that we can understand the heart of God, the character of God. Uh, it's appropriate on Father's Day. I said last service, I wish I would have been smart enough to have planned this sermon for Father's Day, but I wasn't. And so I didn't. But God knew what was coming. And so, first of all, all the dads, happy Father's Day to all of you. Thank you for being a part of our lives. Uh, we're going to take a look at this man in the story. Jesus tells us this parable. And the father in the parable is, is God. And what you've heard me talk about for a few weeks now is that we are the prodigal sons and daughters. And we're going to find out what happens when one of us comes home and comes back to God through this story. But to understand the basics of the Christian faith, because that's really what this is about. It's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. To understand the basics of the Christian faith, we need to understand the basics of the heart of God. We make assumptions that we know who God is because we hear a little bit or we get it from the news or a friend tells us something or we think that we maybe remembered a Bible verse. (coughs) But here's the thing. The heart of God is love. At God's very heart, God is love. And God is also equally at the same time intolerant of human sin. And that's hard for us to understand because we think, well, God must be one or the other. But God is love and God is intolerant of human sin. One of those should comfort and encourage us, and one of us, one of those should positively terrify us. But both of those descriptions are true of God. Proverbs 9.10 says this, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. We cannot be followers of Jesus. We cannot be followers of Jesus without knowing and understanding the heart of God. We're told to fear God, not because God is harsh or because God is vindictive or because God is cruel. And that's what people make it out to be. But that's not the fact at all. That isn't true. We're to fear God because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and because God is just. Because God loves us and God is intolerant of human sin. 
That's the reason he sent us Jesus. But in that very simple introduction, we struggle with understanding God because the idea of God being loved and being feared, God being loving and being fearful, is hard for us to grasp. We can't really understand that in human terms because we think about a person as being usually one or the other. We can think of people who are one and we can think of people who are the other, but being both equally, either people are kind and gentle or loving or... People are overbearing and and powerful and mean and cruel. But the simple fact is God is different. God is not like us. We try to understand God in our terms and through our experience. We try to understand God in ways that, that we can describe because, well, at least it connects something in us. And that's why Jesus told this parable, so that we could understand God in a very different way, but relate to him in ways that we understand. When we, when we struggle to describe God and then we start doing it in human terms and ways that we can understand, what we do is we reduce God to a nicer version of who we are. And God, in fact, is so much completely unlike anything that we are. That's why the parable can make sense to everyone, because it's in human terms helping to describe a God that is nearly impossible for us to fully grasp. So where we left it off... The prodigal son had gone to the father. He was the younger of two brothers. And the father seems to have been a man of some wealth. He goes to the father and he says, Hey, Dad, I want my share of my inheritance. I want it now because I want to leave. I want to, I want to leave the farm or whatever they had. The father comes back to him and he gives him his share of the inheritance. And the son goes off to a faraway land where he goes to spend his money in wild living, the Bible says. Turns out that he uh, spent his money pretty quickly and all the friends that were happy to spend the money for him deserted him and he ended up working at a place where he was feeding the pigs and the pigs had better food than what he had because a drought had overtaken the land and he was left with nothing. And the Bible said he came to himself. There was one day when he was in the pig pen realizing I literally don't have food. The pigs have better food than I have. I've got to do something. I've completely messed up my whole life. And what he decides to do is He's going to go back to his father. He's going to go back and confess that he's, he's done it all wrong. He's sinned against his father and against heaven. And rather than going back saying, hey, dad, can I have my place as your son again? He says he's going to go back and he's simply going to ask to be a servant because at least his father feeds the servants. And so he goes through this time of, of admitting and understanding and accepting and acknowledging his sin, and he decides to go back to his father without anything because he's got nothing left. He's got no money, no property, no purpose, no friends, no hope other than the kindness of his father. And so I'm going to ask you two questions, one at the beginning and one end of this message today. And the first question is, what hope do you really have outside of the love of your heavenly father? You might say you've got a great retirement portfolio. That's good. Congratulations. I bet you worked hard to save for it. But wow, they're talking about our economy taking some turns, and how's that feeling right now? Well, you know what? We've, we've got lots of food in the basement. We've got things stored up pretty well. Well, that might suddenly come into question. Well, but I've got good health. I've got hope in my health. Well, you do today. Outside of God as our Heavenly Father, who is the Father in this parable, what hope do you really have? And if you are clinging to something other than God as your heavenly father, you're really grasping for air. So we're going to start in verse 22. This is a recap from where we've been. He goes back to his father and he says, Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Would you be willing to take me on as a servant? In verse 22, the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. 
Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, and now he has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. The father wanted nothing more than to share his joy over his son with everybody around. He was so ecstatic that this lost son had come home. He wanted the son even more than that, not just the party. He wanted him not to feel like the foolish, sinful young man that he had shown himself to be. His actions had earned him that. But the father wanted him to feel more like a prince, like royalty. So he goes and finds the best robe, puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This guy who days before had been living in a pig pen, wishing he could eat as well as the pigs were eating. But the father says, I want you to know, and it's going to start with how it is that I dress you. I want you to know what you mean to me. Isaiah 61 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and uh, draped me in in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Jesus is going back as he so often does, and he's connecting to the Old Testament. This parable, which isn't necessarily something that happened in real life, but it's a truth for all of us. There's a truthful lesson for all of us. Jesus is reflecting what is said in the book of Isaiah. What Jesus does so often is ties Old Testament teaching to his teaching. Not not just to show his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, But Jesus wanted to show the connection that the people of his day had to the Jewish people, the connection to their history that's recorded in the Old Testament. When we talk about the New Covenant, there's a connection between Old Testament history and the New Covenant in Jesus. And covenant is just a word that means promise. There's a new promise that we have in Jesus. So if we understand the Father in this parable, and we need to do this because it's a right way to read the parable. We need to understand the Father in this parable as our Heavenly Father. And you and I, you and I, we're the prodigal sons and daughters. And so often we want to say, well, I'd rather be the Father. I'd rather be the one that's really kind and understanding. Sometimes we have an opportunity to be that person. We get to show that unconditional love to people around us. But in this story, we're the prodigal sons and daughters. We need to understand then that the father dresses his son not as a rebellious and disobedient child. The son had proved he was a rebellious and disobedient child. Had no respect for his father at all when he went and demanded the money. But rather he dresses him as royalty as though his son is a prince coming home from a foreign visit. The first thing that the father does is changes the son's perspective. You may have come home humble wanting to be a servant, but you need to understand that as you come home, you are my son. And he treats him like a prince. See, God knows that our sins should make us feel like we're nothing more than filthy rags. And I'm guessing the whole time this boy was walking home to his dad, he felt like nothing but a filthy rag. That's why Jesus has the father in this parable dress the son in his finest robe and sandals and a rig. See, that's what confession and forgiveness do for us. We might hold on to the memory of our sin, but when we confess and are forgiven, God, the Bible says God doesn't even remember our sin anymore. See, the prodigal son had the realization of, of the magnitude of what he had done after he'd lost everything. He had nothing left. And at that point, the only hope that that young man had 
was his expectation of who his father was through the experience of living in his home. The, the, only, the only hope that he had was the possibility that his father would welcome him home as a son. So it makes me wonder, what, what are your expectations of your heavenly father? Because our expectations go an awful long way to the experience that we have of God. Because if you expect little of God, you're going to see little of God. You're going to experience little of God. And here's what I mean. Not because God isn't going to bless you abundantly, but you're not going to give God credit for it. You're not going to recognize Him. You're going to pray for some big miracle, but if you don't believe that God can actually, actually respond with the miracle, you're going to say, wow, what a great coincidence that was. Things just broke in my favor. What is your expectation of your heavenly Father? Do you believe that God sits in divine judgment over you? Or do you believe that God delights in you? That God rejoices in you? Not in your sin, but in you. One of Deidre's favorite verses is Zephaniah 3.17. God rejoices over you with dancing. That's what the Father is doing in this passage. The Father is rejoicing over the Son with dancing. He didn't spend time talking about everything the son had done wrong. He spent time celebrating the fact that the son was home. So do you, re- do you believe that God rejoices over you with dancing, or do you believe that God just sits in divine judgment and is always angry with you? See, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, and God no longer sees us as a dirty sinner. God sees us as a sinner of his own redeeming, who he has turned into a saint through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, God purchased your life with the death of his son. There was a price to be paid, and it was Jesus. And if you believe in him as your Savior, and you have submitted your life to him as your Lord, saying, God, I'm going to do everything that I can now to live my life for you, then the Bible says that you're a co-heir with Christ, a co-heir of God's Son, of God's kingdom, all of its treasures, treasures, riches, rewards, and blessings. And this younger son, this prodigal son, came home, and he began to understand in real terms what that means. But then verse 25, there's a, there's a meanwhile, there's a but. Because there's one other character in this story, and this gets to the next question I'm going to ask is, who are you? Because we've got to realize that we want to be the father that's loving and understanding and welcoming. But in this parable, we're the prodigal sons and daughters. And so are we the younger son or the older son? Verse 25, meanwhile, there's a movie, you know, this is where the music would change and the scenery would change and the lighting would change. The older son is in the fields working and something's about to happen because eventually the the older son is going to come home. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? What's going on is the obvious question. This guy had spent his whole life working in the fields diligently for his father. I bet you not once had he come home and heard music and seen dancing going on in the house. Probably the first time in his whole life. What's going on? That's a pretty obvious question. It's probably pretty well contained. Remember back to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord rejoices over you with dancing. That's what's going on. The father didn't say that the son hadn't done him wrong. He didn't say that he hadn't sinned against him, but he celebrated when he came home. The answer in verse 27 is, Your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the fattened calf, and we're celebrating because of his safe return. We, all of them, everyone, all of the household, all of the servants, probably everybody in the neighborhood, and as far as they could get word, was there to celebrate that the lost son had come home. 
They were celebrating with that calf, the one that the older brother had been a part of making sure was growing up and was fat and happy because he assumed that he was entitled to a celebration with his friends with that calf. Because a wealthy family always had one animal that was off to the side that was the special one for the big day, whatever the big day was. That brother sounds like he was entitled, like he was assuming that that calf would be for him. Maybe a party for he and his friends. But his idiot little brother, you got to be kidding me. Who would throw a party for that guy? The one that took dad's money and ran away and blew it all on wild living? There's a party because he came home and he's safe? Seriously? The older brother's thinking that's ridiculous. Verse 28, the older brother was angry. And he wouldn't go in. I'm afraid that's an awful lot like a lot of us a lot of the time. He chooses to separate himself from the celebration because he made it all about him. He couldn't get his mind around celebrating that his brother was home. He was stuck on the fact that he'd never left. He couldn't celebrate the fact that his brother had completely destroyed his life and had come home to his dad and his dad was so excited when he had been the dutiful son who was there working hard every single day. It's so easy to be that older brother. He doesn't deserve it. I do. So his father comes out, says his father came out and begged him. This is the dad that is so overjoyed that the lost son has come home. Can you imagine how much the father loved the older son for standing with him every day? Could you imagine the relationship? I'm sure the dad thought they would have had the most rock-solid, bulletproof father-son relationship ever. The dad knew that boy was committed. He knew that he was on board. He knew that he was a hard worker. That wasn't the question. He wasn't taking anything away from him. But he was so grateful that the younger son had come home. But as far as the older brother is concerned, there's no reason to celebrate. And it gets to us in our perspective. It gets to how we see the world and what's worthy of celebrating and what's not. I I see so many Christians that walk around as some of the least joyful people that I know that I don't want to even, well, I do want to know where they go to church because I don't want to go there. I don't want to be the grumbly, down, complaining, finger-pointing, gossiping Christian that that I see sometimes. As believers who God has given everything to, we should be the most joy-filled people in the world. But maybe you know somebody who's walked away from church in a relationship with Jesus because they were mad about God at something. That's it, I'm done. They're the older son. I'm not coming in to celebrate the party. In fact, I'm not even coming to church. I'm done with God. If that's the way God's going to be, I don't want anything to do with them. Maybe somebody they love died too young. And they blame God for it. Rather than celebrating the life that they had with them, they blame God for taking them too soon. Maybe a relationship has ended. Maybe they've gone through a financial hardship. Maybe they didn't do anything wrong at all. But they're mad at God over something. There's a million reasons that we find to get mad at God and walk away. But just like in this parable, the only person that's being punished is ourselves. See, God grieves our anger toward him, but does not change God's love for us. God isn't afraid of you being mad at him. But God does grieve that we build a wall and separate ourselves from him. Because it doesn't change his love. Verse 29, the father replies, All these years 
Or the son replies, excuse me, all these years I've slaved for you. No, he hasn't. He's worked with his father. He hasn't slaved for him. I slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. The older brother refuses to celebrate the safe return of his brother. Instead, he makes the whole party about him and his anger. Everything that's happening, he makes about him. He runs it through the me filter. And here's the sad truth. There is something in many of us that is simply unable or unwilling to join in the pure celebration of someone else without running through the filter of what it means to us personally. Why do they get the party? Why did they get the raise? Why did they get the promotion? Why is everybody so excited about that? They didn't work half as hard as I did. I showed up for 10 more hours a week than they did. Some of us just have a hard time truly complimenting others because we're worried that somehow our contribution will appear less for someone else to be recognized. That's the older brother. Others of us, we're like the older brother who's unable to find joy in the success or the notoriety or the celebration of somebody else. Because we've got all of our reasons, but just like the older brother, all of those reasons begin with our own sinfulness, selfishness, and sense of entitlement. And in the church, if someone were to have a position or get noticed or have some blessing from God that we think that we deserve, suddenly that becomes religious entitlement, and that's even worse. It's our way of being like the older brother that represents that spirit of religiousness, that right and wrong, you know, right should be rewarded, wrong should be punished, that good deeds we expect favor for, we expect position and power, we expect God to recognize that when God's already give us, given us the inheritance of heaven in Jesus. So what does the son do? He rejects his father's invitation, just like that spirit of religiousness in our hearts can have us rejecting God in favor of what we think is right or what we want to call justified. Verse 30, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money. So this is the older son talking to his dad now. Yeah, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. How dare you, dad? How dare you reward his bad behavior? How dare you pretend like nothing's wrong? You're wasting the one special calf that we have for that one celebration on him. In fact, the older brother assumes he knows what the younger brother was out doing, and he starts calling him out on it. The Bible doesn't tell us. It says wild living. That's all it says. Then the father speaks in verse 31. And the father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything that I have is yours. What the father wants this son who is having his own pity party to realize is everything he's working for belongs to him. Everything that they accumulate together belongs to the older brother. All of it belongs to the son. All the treasures of the father belong to the son. All of the land, all of the buildings, all of the animals, whatever they have, all the treasures of the father belong to the son. The older son's inheritance is everything that the father has to give him. Just like the treasures of heaven are our inheritance from our Father. Because you've you got to remember this parable is about God and how He loves us. Even though we're reading about the Father that loves the prodigal son. And yet the older son chooses to believe the worst about the Father and his brother. 
First Peter 1, starting verse 3, says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we've been born again. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, now we live with great expectation. The prodigal son had very low expectation. Let me be a servant. The other servant, the, the other brother, the older brother, had completely crazy expectations. But we can live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, because beyond the reach of change and decay, and through your faith, God is protecting you by His power until you receive this salvation, which is already to be revealed on the last day for all to see. The older brother couldn't see in front of him. He couldn't see one more day down the road, even though the dad says, you know what you're working for? It's all yours. You're going to get it all. He said, we had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. I, I love it. We were getting ready for the first service, and Brady and I were kind of talking. It's a little bit windy, and all the papers are blowing around. And, and Brady goes, yeah, but it's a good day to have a good day. Yeah, that's good perspective, Brady. Thank you. It's a good day to have a good day. The older brother can't understand why it would be a good day to have a good day. And the dad says, today is a great day to have a great day. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This statement so beautifully shows us the heart of God, our Heavenly Father. This statement shows us our hope in sin. The, the sad thing is that this, this incredible father had two sons, older son, younger son. And what we realize by the time Jesus gets done with this parable is that neither one of those sons had the father's heart. Neither one of them had inherited their father's heart. They both proved that they're selfish and more interested in themselves than their father or their brother. The younger son disrespected the father in, in the most offensive way. He rebelled against his father. He disrespected his brother. And he was selfish all the way. The, the older brother despises his younger brother, disrespects his father. He's angry, pride-filled, and self-righteous. And so this might be a really good time for us to pause Take a giant step back and say, what about us? Take a look at your own life and your own heart. If each one of us stops and pauses to examine ourselves and how we think and how we see the world, what are we going to find? What's your attitude when someone around you gets noticed? Maybe they didn't do as much as you did and didn't do as well as you did. What's your attitude when someone around you gets noticed for something and they get recognized when you feel like they don't deserve it? Do you celebrate them and their, their success? Do you celebrate that they're being recognized? Or are you like the older brother that said, you know what, I worked a lot harder. I did a lot better. I earned a lot more. How about when your hard work and effort is ignored or overlooked? People don't even notice. How do you feel when someone else is experiencing success that you feel you should be the one who gets to enjoy? What are your thoughts? What thoughts come to your mind when you see someone walking into church and you go, I know them. I know their past. I know who they are. I know their life. They don't belong here. Or do you celebrate? Maybe they're here to meet Jesus. Maybe they've met Jesus and they're here to grow. Do you celebrate and welcome their return to God or do you judge them by their past actions? How about when you hear juicy gossip about somebody? Do you jump on in and believe it and start passing it along and jump and assume the worst conclu conclusions like the older brother? Or are you like the father who looks for the very best, the most kind, the most loving, the most gracious outcome possible? 
See, whatever our responses are, that's kind of the good news of this parable, that our hope isn't in ourselves. Our hope isn't in us at all. Not in our own belief of our own goodness or our best efforts. Our only hope in this life is in our Father who is in heaven, who sent Jesus, his Son, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That is our hope. Our hope is in Jesus. See, Jesus paid the price for our sinful, self-righteous selfishness. So that like the prodigal son, we're still able to approach our Father knowing that he will celebrate and love us on our return back to him. The son started his return with confession. And the father loved him beyond anything the son would have imagined. So do you see your God? Do you see your heavenly father as someone who stands in judgment, who's always angry with you? Or do you see him the way Zephaniah does, as someone who rejoices over you with dancing? Here's where we're headed next week. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, the old them goes away. Still going to look the same. Maybe still going to talk the same for a while. Might even act the same for a while. But you know what? The old person is gone. The Bible says that a new creation has come. Do we celebrate and help someone become that new person? Or are we the older brother that says, nope, not on my watch, not a chance. I know who you are and that's who you're always going to be. Next week we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a new creation. What does it mean for you? And what does it mean for the people around you? Because the only way that we're ever able to become a new creation is through Jesus and through our Heavenly Father who loves us and who rejoices over you with dancing. Let's pray. God, thanks for this parable. Thank you for the way that Jesus taught in a way that's just simply so understandable, so relatable, so clear. Sometimes the things he said were intentionally not clear. This parable is clear that, God, you love us. It's not that you dismiss or disregard our sin. God, you certainly have higher expectations of us than that. But that, God, you love us and nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you, God, for Jesus, who paid the price for our rebellion, who paid the price for our sin, that we can, we can come to our senses and return to you and that you will welcome us. Thank you, God, that you are our Heavenly Father who rejoices over us with dancing. Not just... Oh, God, you don't, you don't rejoice over our sinful nature, but you rejoice over who it is that we are, who you created us to be, and that we always can come home to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.